Last Sunday I was talking about what I call blessing in Babylon. I was looking at Jeremiah chapter 29 and God's promises to the children of Israel who've been taken into exile in Jeremiah 29 and about how he wrote to them and he told them that God had plans for them that they would be blessed. That their future would be blessed in the new land into which he has brought them, Mario. Can you hear it? The Lord is speaking to you, brother. You'll be blessed in the new land that God has brought you to. Um, and that, that God's plan was to, even though they didn't really want to be there, and they were there significantly against their will, God would bless them in that place, and he would cause them to prosper. And what he said to them was, while you're there, you're going to be there for 70 years. Some of the false prophets were saying, oh, we're going home soon. But he said, no, this is what God says. 70 years have been decreed for Babylon. You're going to be 70 years away, which is an entire lifetime. But he said to them, settle down, build houses, Plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry, amen. Find wives, find husbands, find wives and husbands for your sons and for your daughters, and have children, amen. But not too many, amen. He said, increase and do not decrease, because God is with you and God is going to bless you. And despite the desperation of their situation, God blessed them in that place until the day that they returned to their own nation many years later. I want to look today at building in Babylon. I want to look at what does it look like to build in Babylon and what will it take to build in Babylon. I'm going to look this morning at the life, a little bit of the life, only just the very start of his life, at the life of Daniel just for a few moments. And three things that Daniel displayed that I think we will need to display. First of all, he displayed faith. Second of all, he displayed wisdom. And third, he displayed a lot of courage in the situation that he was in. You have to remember his context before we get to it. Like I said, the children of Israel had been taken away from their own land, taken captive by the Babylonians. And when the Babylonians arrived, they brought them in and they were strangers in a strange land. And they became exiles. In some ways, we've become exiles. Last Sunday, in the early service, I asked how many people were not born in this country. How many people are here this morning and were not born in this country but who live here now? And about half the people stood up in the 10 a.m. service. And about two-thirds of the people stood up in the 11.30 a.m. service. Showing that so many people who were living here were literally physical exiles in the land, just like they were, physical exiles. Now, for many of us, we're not physical exiles. We were here. I was a physical exile for about a year, but I'm not, no, thank God, I'm back where I was born. But in the middle of it all, I made the point that not only were the physical exiles, they were cultural exiles, just like we are. The Bible in the, New, in the New Testament, Peter writes to the Christians and calls them aliens and strangers, Paul calls them. Exiles is what Peter calls them. And they were cultural exiles and physical exiles. And of course, because they were separated from Jerusalem, which was the heart of their worship, they effectively, in many of their minds, became spiritual exiles. And they were made exiles, dragged away from their own land by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who was also known as the Lion of Babylon. Now, the, the symbol of the lion is associated with Babylon and is associated with kingly and regal power. But in specific case of Babylon, it started with Nebuchadnezzar. He was known as the lion simply because everywhere he went, he tore apart the opposition. Everywhere he went, he ruined and rendered and tore apart lives and countries and nations and governments and armies. He was the top dog, top lion 
pardon the pun, he was the top lion, as it were, in this entire area. In fact, his empire began to reach bigger than any empire that had been known up to that point in history. This was the size of the new kingdom, known as the new kingdom, new kingdom Babylonian empire. This is about the time of Daniel. It actually expanded more than this for a short period beyond this. But the story we're looking at today takes place down here in Babylon. A.K.A. Baghdad. It's actually Babylon, the old city, is actually just to the west of Baghdad. It's on the banks of the Euphrates River. And it was on the banks of the Euphrates River that Psalm 137 was written. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They were heartbroken, dragged away from their nation. And it made the point about how the Irish know what exile is like more than any other nation in the world. Maybe with the exception of the Jews. Because we've been dragged all over the world. There are like a hundred million people claim Irish descent throughout the world. I mean, there's only like six million of us here. But a hundred million people claim descent. And so it's into this context that we're going to look this morning a little bit at the story of Daniel. Just looking at chapter 1, the reason I want to look at it is because I think it has many lessons for us to learn. It has many lessons for us to learn about the situation that we're in, the cultural and religious and spiritual moment that we are in here in Ireland today. As I said last week, welcome to Babylon. We are living in a place where we have become cultural exiles, social exiles in some sense, in some cases physical exiles. And I want to look at God's word. Will you pray with me before we begin? Would you stand with me for a moment and we'll just pray for a moment. Hallelujah. Lord, you are always speaking. The heavens declare your glory. Your word is always speaking to us, but we are not always listening. And so I pray today, Lord, as we gather around your word, that we would be listening, Lord. We would be listening for what the Holy Spirit would put on our hearts, for what would come in a direct point or an indirect point. We pray, Lord, that you would take some of what we look at today and apply it to our lives and to our situations, that we may grow in faith, in wisdom, and in courage. In Jesus' mighty name, And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's take our seats again, guys. May God bless you. No, we're going to be looking at the story of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 to 16. May God bless us as we read his word. Here's what it says. They've been dragged over to Babylon, and this is what it says. The king ordered Ashpenaz, just before we go forward, just let me give you the context. Let me explain the context. Daniel has been brought to Babylon. He's been brought to Babylon as a surviving noble, just as a young man, as a surviving noble. We read last week about how in Jeremiah 36 it's recorded that Babylon, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar's general had slaughtered uh, all of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, all of Zedekiah's sons in front of his eyes and gouged his eyes out. Charming man. And then we also read that he had slaughtered all of the nobles of Judah. So Daniel is amongst the remnant of the nobility who've been brought over from Judah. And he's just a young man. So let's read this. No, we have context. Here we go. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. That's all of us out anyway. That we're sorted. Select only strong, healthy, good-looking young men, he said. And train, he said, make sure they're all well versed in every branch of learning. 
They, they are gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. And then he says this. He says, train these young men in the language and the literature of Babylon. So these men are dragged outside, these young nobles. They're brought in. They're picked out, hand-picked, because they're good-looking and they're smart and they're young, and they're brought in into the court of Nebuchadnezzar. But what did they look like? Well, let me give you a clue. Where's Donica? Donica, will you make your way up here? Will you say, hi, Donica? Hi. Come up here, Donica. Go here a second. This is my nephew, Donica. I fell upon him as he came in the door this morning and prevailed upon him to do something. You sit up in that chair, good man, yourself. This is Donica. Will you try it again? Hi, Donica. Hi, Donica. What age you, Donica? Twelve. Twelve years of age, okay? So now, most scholars reckon that Daniel was aged somewhere between 10 and 14 years of age when he's brought into the court of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is a good representation of a young, healthy, strong Daniel right here. Think about this. He's just a boy. He's just a young lad. He's just a small, he's smart, but he's just a small boy who happened to be born into a noble situation. You see, we think of, we think of, of Daniel as looking like, actually, Grant, will you stand up for a second? We think of Daniel as looking like Grant. He's got the beard and the hair, and he even has that noble look in his face. He kind of looks off and you say, hi, Grant, how are you? And he says, I'm doing fine. How are you? That's what we think of Daniel when we read about Daniel's story. But this is what you need to think of in the stories we're going to read. This is the Daniel that we're talking about. Just a young man. And you know what's even more interesting is that this Daniel, this young man, it's recorded in the last verse of the first chapter of Daniel. It says that Daniel served in the court until the rise of King Cyrus. Anybody heard of Cyrus? I'm sure you've heard of Cyrus if you're familiar with your Bible. So Cyrus, he reigns until the reign of Cyrus. Seventy years later. So Daniel arrives into the court at the age of 12 and leaves the court at the age of 82. That's how long he spends in Babylon. That's how long he's stuck there against his will, against his choice, against how he wants to live. Now let me tell you something interesting about the difference between me and young Dunnocky here. When I became a Christian in 1986, most of the culture shared the same ethics shared the same moral values, same, shared the same cultural values, and shared the same general social outlook. I was probably in a vast majority of Irish people in 1986 when I became a Christian. So to be a Christian meant I was making a, a statement about my identity that I was following Jesus, no turning back. But in many senses, there wasn't an awful lot of difference between me culturally, socially, morally, or ethically than the people I worked around with. Largely, we kind of thought the same things. But in the time that has happened, the world has changed completely. And now we are strangers in a strange world. The things that I see happening in the culture, I go, what? I mean, it's, it's just beyond belief the way that everything has changed so much culturally, socially, spiritually, ethically, the way the culture has changed. And it's really accelerated in the last 10 years. So much so. And I hate to break it to you. I hate to break it to you, but the culture has become hostile to the Christian message and the Christian worldview, and it is going to become increasingly hostile as time goes on. Now, I'm 55. If God spares me another 30 years, I live till I'm 85. If God spares me, Lord, it's in your hands. My time's in your hands. But poor old Dunneke here, he's going to be stuck with it for another 70 years. A young man like this, 
if he follows Jesus, is going to stick out like a sore thumb culturally, spiritually, socially, ethically, in every way he's going to stick out. And he's going to live in this hostile environment for 70 years. Will you extend a hand forward so we can pray for Dunica this morning? <laughs> Would you? Genuinely put a hand forward. We're going to pray for him. Is that okay? Lord Jesus, we thank you for Dunica and that he is the inheritor of the faith of Joseph and Tammy. Can I get an amen? amen? Lord Jesus, we pray that he is not only that, Lord, he is the inheritor of his grandparents' faith as well, Lord, and his great-grandparents' faith that goes on. Lord, we pray for Dunica as he grows up in this culture, in this time, in this season. Lord, that you would bless him as he stands out for you, Lord. You would give him, as I've already said, faith, wisdom, and courage to live the life you've called them to live, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. Let's give it up for Dunica. Come on, Dunica. You can watch your seat sometime. I had to bribe him. I have to give him five euros after us. We can up the stage. Well done, young man. So they're brought in and they're made to learn this, you see? And this is what you will find time after time after time. What the enemy will want to do is he will want you to speak and understand in the language of the culture that surrounds you rather than the biblical language and the biblical culture that we find in God's word that is historically tested, tried, and proven. And so they're called in and then they get another thing happens to them. So they're called in, they're basically stuck into school. Oh, oh I remember school, hallelujah. Uh, they're stuck into school in this foreign country, in this foreign culture. They're taught ways that they were never supposed to understand, hear or see. And then something else happens. Something else happens. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Anybody ever hear that one before? Oh, we used to quote that all the time. Sticks and stones will break my bones, and names will never hurt me. Oh, yes, they will. Oh, yes, they will. And so, and they did, the, 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 the names hurt just like the sticks and stones did. And here was the instruction that was given to, the, to Ashpenaz about these young men. Then Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. You go, yeah, okay. They got new names. That's pretty cool. How many people I'd be interested to see? I've had this conversation so many times with people. Um, I've had it a few times, say, for instance, with, with, with uh, I had it with a Greek fellow recently. So here in church, and he, he knows, he knows it. So his name is Yanis. Yanis Floriakis. Yanis, are you here? You're not here, are you? You're not. He's not here. That's right. So I said to him, he said, I said, what's your name? He said, Yanis. I said, Yanis, Yanis. And I began to pronounce it wrong. He said, no, just call me John. Just call me John. It's easier. I can fit in that way. So no one introduces himself. He always calls himself John. But his name is Yanis. It's like when I was speaking to a Polish guy just a couple of months ago. And I said, what's your name? He said, Brezhnevstas. <laughs> I said, what? Brezhnevstas. I said, right. He said, just call me Mark. It is easier. <laughs> We're Mark. Where did I come? So people choose names sometimes to just fit in. Anybody here have a nickname when they were a child? Anybody here have a nickname? Anybody want to reveal their nickname? Clarence. What's that? Clarence. Clarence. The cross-eyed line. The cross-eyed line. Oh, <laughs> Lord. Healing of memories there. I was nicknamed Dunny, right? 
I was nicknamed Dunny, which is okay, it's Donovan, it's related to, to O'Donovan, I was nicknamed Dunny, but sometimes when I would get amongst a bunch of my friends, they'd start singing, Oh Dunny boy, the pipes, the pipes are calling. I was nicknamed Dunny, I was called Michael, Mick, Micheline, Micheline, Sheen, Sheen, Michael the bicycle, the big fat tricycle, I had loads of names, and I loved all those names. I'll tell you an interesting thing, the first time I walked into a Christian church, first time, I'd been known as Mike, or Mike's, or Dunny, all of my life. I walked into a Christian church, just a house group in 1986, and I met a guy inside there, and I was introducing, this guy said, introduced me, he said, as we walked in, the guy had already been there, and he said, he said, let me introduce you to my friend Mike, and the leader of the church put his hand out to me, says, Michael, it's good to see you. It was the first time somebody had called me Michael in years. Do you know something? God restores our true identity, can I get an amen? But now I'm calling Mike, and that's okay too. Just don't call me Mick, okay? Just don't call me Mick. I don't like Mick. But you go, so what's the big deal about their names? The change of the names was an attempt to rob them of their identity. It's that simple. The attempt was to rob them of their identity and give them a Babylonian identity. Basically to say to them, you are no longer Jews. You are no Babylonians. You no longer serve Yahweh, the God of heaven. You now serve the gods of the Babylonians. How do I know that? Just look at the names that they were given. Daniel's name in Hebrew means God is my judge. Hallelujah. With the name he was given by the Babylonians, Prince of Bel, who was the chief God of the Babylonians. Look at the next one. Here we go, Hananiah. Yahweh is gracious. What a great, beautiful name. What name was Hananiah given? He was given the name Shadrach, the inspiration of the sun, or the sun god, Rach. What about Mishael? Who is like God? Same name as mine, Michael. It's the very same name. Who is like God? It's a rhetorical question. Meaning there's no one like God is the answer to the question. Who is like God? What name was he given? Who is like Shak? And I'm talking about Shakir, I know, in case you're wondering. Who is like Shak, the earth god? And also for Azariah, Yahweh is my helper, is his name. But he was given the name Servant of Nebo, the fire god. And so here you see the chief god, the sun god, the earth god, the fire god. It was an attempt to erase their spiritual identity. And that's what the devil will do to you when you fall or when you find in yourself in tight situations. He'll say to you, you're not a Christian. Who do you think you are? You're not really a Christian. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't be in this trouble. If you were really a Christian, you wouldn't be taken captivity by this situation. And all he does is he tries to strip you of your identity as a Christian. The God-given, God-blessed, God-honoring identity. But I tell you this, whatever un any anyone's name, whatever anyone gives you in terms of a new name, I tell you this, the book of Revelation says this, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will give a new name. I will give a new name. That's what it says in the book of Revelation. And so that's the plan for us. God's name to be on our lives. And so they were given a new education. And they were given new names. Now you kind of go, okay. They were given a new education. Didn't matter that much. They knew what they knew. And they believed what they believed. They were given new names. It didn't really matter that much. Because they knew who they were. But... One last test comes along, and it's what I call the taste test. Now, you're probably familiar with the story, so I'm going to read through it quite quickly. It's the story about how they were, they were presented with the food from the king's table. It was the taste test. Now, what would they do? Let me tell you this. What would they do? There was no rule in the, in the Jewish laws about what name you were called. There was no rule about that. There was actually no particular rule, even though there was an instruction, about the stuff that you learned. So, you could learn the poetry of the local area if you wanted to. You could learn about the culture to the local area. You were to keep God's word as the primary thing. And so even in education, it didn't matter what they were taught because they knew what they knew. When it came to their names, it didn't matter. They knew who they were. 
But when it comes to this, there are specific instructions against eating the food that they were presented. And so they were challenged with the situation. And this is what it says. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter the royal service. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. No! You are, you, here's the thing I can't get over it. So you have survived the slaughter of the nobles. More than likely, your parents and your uncles and aunts have been slaughtered by Nebuchadnezzar. You've survived that, and then you have survived, unfortunately and more than likely, being castrated and being made a eunuch so that you can go back to Babylon. You survived that. And then you survived the big long journey along what was called the, the Fertile Crescent all the way to Babylon. You've survived that. And then when you get there, they look at you and you go, they say, you're handsome, you're good looking, you're smart. We want you to work in the court of the king. And you go, hallelujah, it's the favor of God all over the place. He rescued me from death. He rescued me from violence. He rescued me and kept me safe on the journey. And now I've been picked out to work for the king of this mighty empire. Daniel, would you keep your mouth shut and your head down? Keep your mouth shut. Just get on with it. God has blessed you. Look how much you've survived. Look how much you've gotten through. And no, you want to like, have an argument over food. Daniel, what are you thinking? Lads, what are you thinking? But Daniel was determined not to defile himself. I love it. What an attitude. What a courageous and faithful attitude. He was determined that he wasn't going to defile himself. After all that he'd been through. He asked the chief priest for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. And the lovely says, he asked for permission. He didn't stand and say, no, I am a Jew and therefore I shall not eat. You can martyr me if you wish. No, no. He asked for permission. Would you, would you mind? I think Daniel might have been Irish. Would you mind? Would, would, would it be okay if I don't eat this food? Because I can't. I'm a celiac. I'm sorry. I can't would it be okay if I just passed on that? And it says this. Watch this. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. He liked him. He wanted to look after him. Look, he showed him favor and compassion. How many of us here need favor and compassion in our lives? I need favor. I need it right now. I need God's favor in my life. I want people to show me favor in my life. Right this very, very minute. But it says this though. He was a smart guy, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the lion of Babylon, who chops people's heads off, who has assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would have my head because of you. And here was the assumption. The assumption was, if you're not going to eat what our culture presents to you, you're going to become sick. If you don't swallow what we tell you to swallow, you are going to become unwell. You are going to become pale and limp and lose your strength. And I'm going to be in trouble with the king if that happens. But then we see Daniel do something very clever. It says that Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Just give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. You see, when he got a no from the top, he then went down to the next level and wisely asked and made a reasonable proposal. He didn't say, I will never eat this food again. He said, just give us 10 days. Test me. 
for 10 days. Test us for 10 days and see, see how we get on. And this is what it records. Then compare our appearance of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. And so he agreed to test them for 10 days. And you see, this is the point. He says, then compare our appearance with the young men who eat the royal food. Compare our appearance with the people who eat what the culture gives them. Compare our appearance with the, with the, with the, with the people who just devour the menu of our culture, of the culture here in Babylon, and compare it after 10 days and to see what the difference is. And it's the same for us in our lives. And this is, if you will, prophetic to our own lives. You see, right now, we can have a difficult time trying to swallow the things that God wants us to, to, to live in the way that God wants us to live. And the culture is pressurizing us to live in a different way. It's saying, satisfy yourself, please yourself, do what you like, but we're trying to obey God's word. And that can be very awkward and uncomfortable in any particular situation. Why? Because we're interested in our immediate happiness. But as I said last week, God is, in, is as much interested in our ultimate happiness as our immediate happiness. In actual fact, we have to go through a lot of immediate suffering to get to our ultimate happiness, believe it or not. And that's the truth. And that's the truth. If anybody tells you otherwise, they're not telling you the truth. That is the truth. And, if you, and the point here is that you cannot compare your exact right now circumstance. You cannot compare your exact right now outcome as you feel right now you've got to look at it in the long haul what will my life look 10 years 15 years 20 years 30 years 40 years in Donica's case 70 years from now what will his life look like and compare his life with the lives of those who've eaten the menu of our culture and we'll see who's the winner at the end of that and we'll see who does better. We see who is stronger because it records this. It says, at the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who've been eating the food assigned to them by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of food and the wine provided for the others. At the end of the 10 days, the test, they passed the test. They looked better. They were healthier. They were stronger. And the favor of God was all over them because they honored God. Because favor follows faithfulness. Favor follows faithfulness. Will you say it with me? Favor follows faithfulness. So because they were faithful to God and they did what they felt God had told them to do, God favored them and they looked better at the end of the 10 days. And so they were able to eat their own diet for the next three years while they were in captivity. Hallelujah. You go, oh no, that's such a small thing. It's a massive breakthrough in the lives of these men because the next step was they would lose their heads if they got any worse. You see, when we're in a situation like that, can I just say to you, I said at the start, welcome to Babylon. You might go, oh, that's a very negative or a very difficult way to look at it. It isn't, you know. It isn't because that's the reality. The Bible teaches us that Babylon is a motif for the world's ways and the world's systems. And it's all over. The cult our culture is a culture that you would call Babylon. More now than it even was when the things like the New Testament were written. And Christians can tend to have a response. One of two responses. Now, there's one or two historical errors responses we believe that we should live in the culture and bless the culture can I get an amen? amen and that's what God has called you to do live in the culture and bless the culture but yes. don't participate in the culture are you with me are you with me it doesn't mean to withdraw so there's two responses here's the two responses the first response is to withdraw from the culture now I was watching Netflix with my wife Friday night before last okay I know I know I know I know 
<laughs> so we were looking for a good movie, but there's no good movies. Like, like if you watch a movie on Netflix, it preaches at you more than I'm preaching at you. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like everything, it's always telling you how to live and what you should value and this kind of stuff. So I stumble across this documentary about an island of the, of, in Western Greece called Athos. Has anybody ever heard of the island of Athos in Western Greece? So, so I started watching this documentary Friday night before last in the evening with my wife. And I know, sisters, I know what you're thinking. She's such a lucky girl. <laughs> he really knows how to give a girl a good time. You know what I'm saying? Sitting at home Friday night watching a documentary about monasteries. You crazy fool! I know you're thinking, oh, what madness is he up to at all? And I know lads, look, just follow my footsteps. You, 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 you make your wife happy. Watching the documentary, oh my goodness. About it. But I started watching this documentary, and I was fascinated by it. You see the thing about this island of Athos, it's actually an independent religious island, and it has its own government. The Byzantine laws are presented there. And there has been no women on this island since the year 350. No women have lived on this island since the year... 350. It became an official monastery in the year 1052. There have only been either six, I can't remember the exact number, either six or eight times that a woman set foot on the island in the previous 1800 years. Would you believe that? Only eight times a woman has set foot on the island. And so, as I'm watching this documentary, it's these monks and they're going around and they've all got beards. They all look a little bit like Grant, only a little bit older, like, you know, they all kind of had that kind of, I think I might be Jesus on the inside, look on the outside. And, and they all have beards and they all kind of went their own kind of, and everybody was really quiet, and it was all these conversations, and it was, Good morning, brother Yannis, good morning. And I'm absolutely glued to it. They're breaking bread, they're baking bread, and they're trimming vines, and they're digging crops, and they're stopping and gazing out to sea. And then they're spending hours in their cubicles, or whatever you call them, their cells, sitting in their cells, reading the Bible, looking out the window at the views, and I went, oh, I'd love it, I'd love it, for about a week. <laughs> and then after that, then after that, Greek police said the man got a machine gun. <laughs> And he went straight to the monastery. You see, I don't think I would cope with it very long, but the whole idea was that these people were withdrawing so that they could focus on God. And it sounds amazing. Yes, their whole lives are dedicated to withdrawing and spiritually reflecting upon God. But that's not the life that God has called us to live. Not at all. Oh, contraire, this is what Jesus said. Jesus said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We're not to withdraw from the world. We are to live in it. We're to bless it. We're to live our lives out as Christians and demonstrate God's goodness in our lives in the culture we are in. Can I get an amen? amen. The other alternative, however unfortunately, is that we assimilate to the culture. This is something that a lot of Christians have done. And what you will find is that over the years, Christians who assimilate into their culture are become like the culture, allow the culture to dictate the terms and the values and the ethics and the morals and the worldview upon them. Those people actually end up fading into the background and disappearing. They become so like the culture that they stop being salt and light. They no longer become visible. They no longer stand on their feet and represent Jesus. Jesus Christ. They assimilate into the culture. Even in Ireland, to this day, there are Christian, um, there are Christian um, uh, denominations uh, who are actually becoming more and more and more like the culture. And do you know what's happening? They're disappearing. 
They're just disappearing because they don't stand for anything. They don't stand for anything. Ah, whatever you have yourself, you know, whatever makes you happy, whatever you want, that's what you need. Oh yeah, that's, we just, they just totally marry the culture. I like what one Christian writer said. He said, any church that marries the culture of its time will find itself a widow in the next generation. That's what will happen. And so as I said to, I think I said to Dara the other day, it's differentiate or die. It must be a different place. It must be a place where God's standards are applied. It must be a place where we value something different to the culture around us. This is what Paul said. You know the verse backwards, but it applies to this idea of assimilation more than anything else. He says this. He says, don't conform to the pattern of the world because the world has a pattern that it wants to fit you into. Just like Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, it just wants to fit you in, wants to get you into its hole. It just wants to get you into its shape. Don't conform to the shape of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can think clearly and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will are you with me don't conform he says don't fade in don't assimilate into the culture stand out from the culture be visible stand for Jesus Christ stand for the values of the kingdom of heaven hallelujah But how do we do it? Let me come towards a close. How do we wrap it up? How do we live as exiles? First of all, we've got to pray seriously, brothers and sisters. Pray seriously, not flippantly. Pray seriously about the decisions and choices that we make. And pray seriously in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 1 to 2. Paul says that he, uh, he actually urges that we pray for everyone, but especially for those who are in government. Especially for those who are in government. Why? He said, so that we can leave, so that we can live peaceful lives Free from trouble. Pray seriously. Remember the government when you pray. It's it's, when we pray, when we pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, that your kingdom come and your will be done, is what we should be praying for our government, that God's kingdom and God's will will be done in our governments. It won't always happen, but we'll be faithful to pray. Can I get an amen? Amen. Pray seriously. Then think biblically. I'm no good when I go to the movies. I go to a movie and I start watching the movie, and as I'm starting to watch the movie, Ellen is saying to me, Would you be quiet? Because I'm going, Oh, would you believe? Oh, I can't believe this. What are they trying to tell us? Oh, come on, this is ridiculous. I went to see Avatar, Way of Water. Brilliant movie. I mean, very long, fabulous movie. Very, very engaging. But what a load of nonsense. And all the secret messages that you were being sent, all the, all the subtle messaging that was going on underneath the script and underneath the settings and everything that was going on. No, you have to be your true self and you must be a true person that you truly... Ah, get out of here. Leave me alone, will you? So, so what, what I'm saying is we need to think biblically. What does, it, what does the Bible say about how we should live and how we should think and how we should live out our lives? We need to think biblically. Now, the reason I think biblically is not because I'm a specially spiritual man. It's because I've been reading the Bible for 40 years. And so, therefore, it's kind of in my head. My mind has been washed. I've been brainwashed. Hallelujah. <laughs> I'll tell you something. Do you know what the Bible is? The Bible is a mind-altering substance. And it will alter your mind if you take it into your system. It'll take it into your system. It'll alter the way you think. It'll alter the way you talk. It'll alter the way you live. It'll alter the way that you behave. That's what it will do. Think biblically. And finally, act intentionally. James says in James 1.22, don't just be readers of the words only, but doers of it also. Don't just take the word in and go, ah, that's a very nice word there, that I should love my neighbor. I hate him really. But you know what I do? No, love your neighbor as yourself. Are you with me? We have 
have to do what it says. And that involves acting intentionally, not living by default, not living lazily, and certainly not living passively in our culture. Can I get an amen? amen. Okay, we're going to wrap up. We're going to wrap up. Living is excellence. Maybe the band will make their will. Here's what I want to, to tell you. Here's what Peter writes. Peter writes to the Christians. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your souls. You're in a war. And it's a war for your soul. And it's the desires that are dragging you away. He goes on to say this. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, and being a Christian and having a Christian worldview is now on the wrong side of history. The current period of history. Having that view, people will accuse you of doing wrong because you have a biblical ethic, because you have a biblical worldview, because you have a biblical view uh, of social policy and of moral policy, if you will, in the culture. You'll be accused of doing wrong. He says that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds, and that's the living intentionally, and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Will you stand up with me? We're going to pray.